Cool. Um, my book is called A Small Man's England. It has just come out back in January and it focuses on white working class English men questioning why so many have turned to the right or the far right in recent years and what the left can do about it. I think it's very important to talk about um, largely because to avoid talking about it would be to assist the right and the far right. Um, however, it is a taboo subject in a lot of conversations and I'm fully aware of why and uh, for a lot of good reasons it can be considered a taboo subject. However, I think that any authentic socialist should not shy away from the issue because I think socialism is completely incomplete without every demographic of the working class. Um, also, there's a there's a whole British history of class struggle. One of the things that is central to British identity is uh, a history and a common consciousness of class struggle. So it would be a shame to forget that, basically. And yeah, so um, just, to, just to start the conversation here, Jason, it's um, that taboo subject and there's the rub, isn't it? Why is it so difficult, do you think, for the, uh, I don't know, call it the, the middle class, the, the British establishment, the literary establishment, the chattering classes, call it what you will. Why do you think, Jason, it, it might be so difficult for them to tackle that kind of triple nexus of whiteness, working classness and masculinity? I think there's a, there's a massive concentration at the minute on the, uh, you know, stuff like the Black Lives Matter movement, etc. People are becoming more and more conscious of, uh, you know, the various mechanics of racism, how we've been sort of all indoctrinated into that system and how, you know, essentially, you know, people of colour are getting it in the neck worse than anyone else. I think that is one of the things that people are, the reasons why people are hesitant to talk about white working class males, especially. Um, but I would go as far to say that even I would be, but after reading that book, uh, I found, I found that it's, it's definitely something that needs to be discussed and you're quite right, Tommy, it can't be ignored or shied away from. Um, it was, I found it really interesting. I'd not looked into it before uh, because I myself had, had come to uh, resent people almost like that um, in the mm. sense of anybody that is right-leaning uh, on my Facebook page or anyone that I know, I despise, you know. And essentially, I think after reading the book, and I've had this creeping feeling for a while, uh, it's wrong, you know what I mean? It can't just be uh, a case of ignoring these people. Uh, and denying them any kind of mouthpiece or mm. denying them any space to, 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 to start some kind of a discussion, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's lovely to hear. I think you, one of the things I really admire about a lot of your music, Jason, is that absolute um, fury directed at the right wing and at the establishment. And it's absolutely right to have that there. I think it's just a case of getting over the fact of these people who 
are just normal people who are largely they might be on the dole or they're working poor nine to five jobs without very much money um these people have been indoctrinated by a system which seeks to maintain power and has done for years and years and years and will continue to do so without any uh, discussion around it and I think it's important also to highlight the fact that there is generally a sense of broader working class multiracial culture in the UK as well that does exist I would say um, however to ignore the fact that racial cultures are different and that white working class people are more likely to identify with English culture than a working class person of colour often because English culture has been fed to us as purely white by the neoliberal elite. To ignore those differences is would be ignorant because it can be used against us to create division but the aim would then be to acknowledge those distant uh, those differences and then you know unite in solidarity against anyone that thinks we're daft and thinks that they can walk over us and switch up our opinions so quickly yeah i think um i've never delved into it and uh I don't know why I don't I mean life just gets in the way a lot of the time it's not out of any mm. kind of laziness or ignorance or not wanting to learn but um, no I agree you know in my experience everybody that I know that uh, attributes themselves to these ideologies are white uh, you know and um, that's that's just it you know what I mean it, it, mm. it's definitely it's definitely a social group that's there, but you're right, you know, it's taboo, isn't it? Uh, I think with the middle classes especially, they want to be seen uh, as, I don't want to uh, stereotype people, but you get the impression people want to be seen as all-knowing, uh, all-experienced in whatever field of oppression, uh, you know. Mm. And, and there's a lot, they, to, to a certain degree, there's a lot of white guilt as well, uh, mm. you know. Uh, and it's overcoming that, I guess. But, um, yeah, I agree totally. It's, uh, I found it really interesting marrying that with class consciousness, something that I didn't really understand the meaning of, even re re reading those words in reviews for the band. I'm like, what does that mean? Mm. You know, it, I've only really known what class consciousness means over the last five years, which really, I'm 50, you know. What's all that about? So mm. it, it, it's, it, it rings true, you know. Um, mm. White working class people especially. Well, you know, anyone, here we go again, you know. You get, you get worried about marginalising people or whatever, but, you know, there is no education. You know, it, there's nothing. There's no kind of portal to, uh, uh, you know, critical thinking, as you've said in your book, you know. It's now a middle, middle class playground to a certain degree. It fucking easy is, you know. You just never, you're not going to expect that kind of shit. In fact, that was that your poem uh, where you did. Was it something you've made up about the um, the chat show? What was that chat show? Uh, oh, Jeremy Kyle. Where at the end he just pulls out some fucking monologue from I forgot who it was from some philosopher. George Orwell and yeah, yeah. Did you make that up? Um, 
Yeah, well, the the section, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's fucking brilliant, man. That was oh, really cheers, powerful. Man. That was really powerful. But that says it all, you know. Imagine mm. that. Imagine it's, sitting there in the pub. Just to contextualise that a little bit. So Tommy's book, um, it's an unusual book, um, which is one of the things that's so great about Repeater and Tarek's um, mm. his mm. kind of mission to uh, put out works of literature that cross all these kind of boundaries uh, and genres. And Tommy's book is really structured, part polemic uh, and part essay, collection of essays, if you like, I guess, Tom, Tommy. Mm, um, mm. And then, then punctuated with fictional uh, stylized outbreaks between chapters that actually kind of illustrate some of the stuff that you're talking about. Um, why did you make that decision, Tommy, to, uh, to, to structure the book like that? I wanted to lay it out um, in a way that was almost like a patchwork or a sense of a dreamscape, I suppose, because I think Britain as it stands, it is fragmented and it always will be under neoliberalism, as Jason was saying about class consciousness. Class consciousness has now been smashed apart. And what we now have is the rise of the individual and the individual is all important and I'll do well for myself, fuck you, everyone else attitude. That exists and I don't think that a sort of linear coherent narrative can be ascribed to England at the moment. It can only be represented as a series of discarded images um and i also think it's a dreamscape because i think this idea of the small man's england of the england that was great 50 years ago or so say before thatcher is largely fabricated um and certainly in the post-war period there was a lot more financial security but there was still rampant poverty and there was still, you know, look at the miners' strikes, people weren't content. And we have a strange nostalgia in this country that Jason picked up a lot on as well um, that sort of needs to be shaken out of us or we need to rethink our notions of what England means as a whole and what Englishness is because I always whenever I think of England I think of the working class and um, I I enjoy England part, partly for the meaniness of it but also partly because I think the nation is the sum of the working class people which is the majority of us and it's not the sum of the 5% or the 1% that have all the, uh, the political power until we sort of switch that up we're just going to go around thinking I hate Englishness therefore I hate myself because I am English I don't want to hate myself I don't want to hate where I come from but I do want to make it better a lot of the uh, discussion around um, think categories like class and whiteness and blackness and otherness mm. and belonging a lot of the a lot of the discourse around that has focused the last few years about these things being constructs Jason, a question for you, really, and I'm thinking really of, of the massive influence, particularly as a musician, the massive influence of black music on white working class English culture has always been a bit of a bee in my bonnet. You know, what do you think this idea of whiteness being a construct and that um, all these influences that, that, that we've taken, particularly from empire and from all those influences all around the world, particularly around music, what do you think of this idea that whiteness is as much of a construct as as blackness in it and, and anything else, Jason? Um, 
uh, in the sense of you think it's uh, what do you mean in the sense of um, what do you mean by construct? Sorry. Well, I mean a lot of a lot of the discussion these days has been about blackness being a construct and whiteness being a construct. Yeah. So yeah, this this skin color and that 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 apparently yeah. sometimes sometimes immutable. But as we know, there's so many lights and shades. And someone said to me a long time ago, there's a million shades of blackness. Yeah, um, yeah. Gil Scott Heron yeah. said that to me a long time ago when I met him about my first job as a journalist, and it's stuck with me ever since. Right? Wow. And and yeah, I mean, he's been downhill from there, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> no disrespect, Jason. But you know, it really, it really, really a serious point though. It really stuck with me in that. You know, I mean, I grew up as a working class man in East London in, in, yeah. in, in the 70s and 80s as a boy. And we were saturated in black culture, saturated in blackness, saturated yeah. in, the, in yeah. the language, the tone, the clothes, yeah. music, the rhythms, mm. the, the, the aesthetic of blackness. And yet, all of a sudden, everyone looks at me as a white working class male. And I find that constricted sometimes. Yeah, yeah, very true. Very true. Um, it's fucking really hard, isn't it? Because we're in a climate at the minute where you can't say anything really because it's not in your place to say anything. You want people of colour to say stuff about it. Uh, your role in it, I guess, is to learn from it, to defend any anti-racist notions and to speak up as much as you can and show support, I guess, as a white person. Um, Fuck knows, it's really hard. Um, mm. I'm still, I'm still grappling with it really badly. To the point where I don't say anything. To the point where I couldn't even promote Tommy's book online because I didn't know how to put the subject about the white working class. Because as Tommy said at the start of this interview, it's taboo. Do you know what I mean? And you know, you're going to get people coming in and saying, "Well, this, well, that." You know, because yeah, as white people we are obviously more privileged than people of colour, without a doubt, without a fucking shadow of a doubt. You can just see it, you just walk outside now and you can see it, you know. Um, but that's where our hands are tied as white people, I think, you know, because a lot more people now, particularly people of colour, are getting more of a consciousness about their history. Uh, it's becoming more and more apparent. So you are, for want of a better word, having to take a back foot and you are having to nod your head and in agreement because that is the right thing to do. Um, do I get wound up about the fact that I've, um, you know, I'm influenced by black music predominantly. Uh, do I wear the, those influences on my sleeve? No, because I treat it with a bit of respect. I'm not going to try and act like someone from Tower Hamlets. I'm just not, do you know what I mean? Or someone in a gang or whatever. I'm not going to do that because I am Jason Williamson, 50 year old white man in a middle class area. You know what I mean? But I still take, I still try and use that creativity to fit to my individuality. Um, so does it wind me up if I get cussed by people of colour? No, not at all. I'm still in a thing where it's like, what can I say? You know, uh, I think we have to sit there and think, yeah, it's and quite fucking rightly so, you know. There's some rappers that don't even acknowledge you if you say hello to them online. And it's like, you can understand why, you know. There's that level of hatred and um, disdain, you know, mm. for, 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 for the way that our ancestors have trekked their ancestors. 
and put them in a place that they're in today. You know, you can understand that. So I don't know if I have anything on my, uh, uh, you know, if I have it, if, if I connect to any idea of feeling pissed off about, you know, probably being misjudged by people of colour or, 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 or whiteness being a, a construct. I'm not sure, you know what I mean? And Tommy, you know, that made me think actually what Jason was saying there. Um, are you prepared for blowback for discussing the things that you discuss? How do you mean? Well, I mean, it strikes me because this, this as I say, this troubling trio of whiteness, maleness and masculinity, uh, whiteness, Englishness and masculinity. Um, yeah. It is quite brave, I think, in a way, for a young writer to stick their head above the parapet and to actually start talking about these things because mm. um, it is a difficult environment out there in which to discuss these things. I champion you for doing that, but are you prepared for um, negative uh, feedback and criticism and also misunderstanding? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think that's one of the main reasons that I felt this book should be my debut book uh, because it is controversial and you have to read the entirety of it to understand the whole argument. I feel like some people may not read the book, they may dismiss it on the cover or on the blurb because there is reactionary books on white working class identity, uh, if we call it that, which are out there. And I wholeheartedly distance myself from those books because uh, some of these people are very thinly veiling what is blatant racism. Um, but if we allow those sort of books to continue being published, then we're never going to get anywhere, really. We're not. Uh, I think you do need to take it on the chin that obviously we, the three of us, do benefit from white privilege. White privilege is a very real thing. But then also, whenever I mention the fact that white working class boys are the least academically achieving in the country, um, only just more likely to go to university than children from traveller communities who vast majority aren't in school anyway. People are absolutely baffled and people wonder why. And I think that in the past, in the past, class was celebrated. As I said earlier, we've got this history of class consciousness and class warfare. But now that we are an individualistic society, it's very hard to put across the discussion on working class people who have been here for centuries and centuries and centuries who are just, they're white, without sounding like a nativist. Um, but again, if we don't, if we don't address it, there's, there's no hope of change and there is more solidarity and more consciousness and more of an identity amongst people of colour in the country because they have a shared sense of identity. As I said earlier, we largely, the working class have been shattered and none more so, I think, from each other than the white working class. I mean, I'll take Jason's song Job Seeker, for instance. I remember talking to Jason about uh, when he was working at the job centre himself 
and then also when he's been to the job seeker uh, the job center as a recipient of benefits and like i said one of the things that i really enjoy about jason's work is that level of anger and fury that you can just connect to which you do direct at people like job center workers and i remember thinking the same thing when i've gone to claim the doll but at the same time that person behind the desk is also working class most of the time most of the time they're going back to the council house as well most of the time they're there because that's the only job that they can get their hands on and they may absolutely hate it and that's what we've got when we separate people up is this constant one-upmanship and this constant idea of that person's doing better than me i need to now direct all my anger at them and if we take into account the broad broad vision of what class is you'll see that everyone that's putting each other down is largely the same class and that's what we've become um and so while we're all attacking each other there will be no solidarity and socialism of any form or change of any form cannot uh, be accomplished i don't think so jason where do you see what you and the sleaford mods do in that discussion are, do you are you consciously activist no no not at all i'm a fucking consumer capitalist you know i own the means of my own production do you know what i mean I am, uh, I'm, I'm not any of that whatsoever, but um, I've just carried on the tradition of talking about what I see around me, uh, you know, regardless of what position of life I'm in, which is better than it was, you know what I mean? Uh, but I feel that I've got um, a right to do that because I spent so long working towards that. Uh, now I'm at a point now we're you know i'm not talking about shit jobs anymore but we're i'm just talking about the world around me and i've been able to acquire you know refine this skill of doing that and keep refining it uh it's my trade so to speak you know um yes i'm completely aware of my situation financial situation and my status now but i don't see why i should stop doing that do you know what i mean uh, as long as I'm not misleading anybody, as long as I'm not trying to be something that I'm not, uh, I think there's no problem with that, you know what I mean? I think going back to what we were talking about earlier, I think Tommy's covered himself in the book, to be honest, uh, because he talks about the white, a white working class group as in relation to, uh, from, from what I got anyway, for, to, to far right um, indoctrination, you know? Uh, and I think that is a really, really, a worthy uh, important topic to talk about um, it's it's you know it's it, it's very similar to the book Chavs I thought from Owen Jones to a certain mm -hmm. degree um, it's the only book I've re re read by Owen Jones but um, you know it really did open my eyes up to the question of it uh, and um, I think he's justified in talking about it and if any flat comes back then I think he's he's backed himself up enough to be able to to justify uh the mechanics of the book you know mm. so tommy um in the book you're very you're very explicit about um that you've got a vision for how things should be or, or you, you would like them to be i wonder if yeah. you could sort of summarize that i mean what is a way forward for um sort of uh from from where we are now with this really divisive, identitarian, political 
um, landscape where working class people aren't aware of their own position. They're not, uh, they're not really aware of much solidarity between them. And so they, mm. they, they push against all the wrong, all the wrong people, which are other members of their own, their own socioeconomic class, basically. Mm. Um, how confident are you that there could be a future that looks a bit more like you want it to be? <laughs> That's a stupid question. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I am. I am. I am confident. I think it'll take a long time. Um, I basically think there needs to be a DIY culture of collectivism, which is absolute solidarity with everybody on the same in the same socio-economic situation as yourself. I think it should be DIY because I don't think it's going to be handed to us from above. If you look at people such as Jeremy Corbyn, say, um, we had the opportunity to elect somebody who has come from an authentic socialist standpoint and we, cho uh, we chose to not do that. And that's because we are a good 30, 35, 40 years into being a neoliberal country. And it's got to the point where we are electing neoliberals because that's all we know. So it's common sense. We'll just elect what we know. Change is scary. And therefore, we can't hope to have change handed to us by a political party, I don't think. I think we need to build it ourselves. And it comes from building workers' cooperatives. It comes from having these sorts of conversations and breaking down any taboos and recognising that taboos are manufactured to divide us. And as far as masculinity goes, I think there needs to be a culture of brotherhood developed in which working class men uh, and of all races, but in this instance, white, are looking after one another and becoming pillars of the community and directing their younger brothers, their sons, whoever, in the right direction instead of continuing to push what people would now call toxic masculinity. I don't think masculinity is toxic. I think it's got lots and lots of different layers to it. It's very multifaceted, but it can be twisted to be toxic and we're used to it like that. Um, so it's just about tying up all those neat, all those uh, frayed edges of culture in general as a working class person on the whole um, and realising and waking up to the fact that we're being done over. Mm -hmm. Jason, do you feel like um, Tommy's vision has a chance of coming into fruition at all? I think it's definitely an important point he makes. Um, I think he's unapologetic. I think he's he's put it out there, and you you got you really have got to give him that. Do you know what I mean? He's centering in this instance on white working class males. That's it. Uh, that's what he's centering on, uh, and that's it. And the, you know, the information in the book is 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 good. It's direct. You know, I think I was really, really, I don't know if impressed is the right word, but I was really taken by it. I like the fact he just isn't apologising about it and putting it out there. there is, the book in no way supports in any shape or form, the idea 
of being passive towards racism or nationalism or this idea or these ideas right-wing ideas regressive ideas it, it, you just don't get that from it whatsoever you know and so in that sense it's a good book i think you know i'm getting this um remaining meeting time eight minutes you know it wants me to upgrade i'm not going to do that so when we run out i'd like to if well, I'd like to just have, do an extra 15 minutes, if that's all right, we'll start another call, yeah? But what we're talking about, I'm, I think you bring an interesting point here, the, the masculinity thing. I mean, uh, masculinity and mental health, really, I feel like, I mean, I'm the father of two sons, right? They're 18 and 16, it's, it's shit, 17 today, actually. It's a really bad time to be a young, a young man, right? Yeah, you're in lockdown, but underneath that, as, 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 as you identified in the early chapters of the book, Tom, since the 80s, the old certainties of working class life, the, the factory floor, the building site that's always there to be, to be get, got a job at, the trade, the, uh, the, the old certainties of the football club, the cricket club, the pub, these have all been fragmented and devalued over the years. Uh, and mm. surely, isn't it, that I feel like if any change is going to come, we, all of us, and I think particularly white, white men have got to start looking inside ourselves and actually changing ourselves to actually deal with these new conditions. And it's tough out there, right? Mm, mm. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, like, like I was talking about uh, education earlier, and this is part of the reason that white working class boys are still the worst achieving demographic at school is because there is that or there was that expectation there that you'd go and work in the factory, you'd go work down the mine, you'd go and make money to bring it home to the family and you'd leave school as an early teenager or whatever. And even though that world doesn't exist anymore, the idea of the man or the boy leaving school early and just getting into work straight away has still um, persisted, it still exists. Um, a lot of white working class girls can be you know encouraged to take part in education and education by a lot of white working class people is seen as a sort of soft touch and are oh, you just going there to do it but you're not going to get anything from it so the boys need to go out and work and girls can uh, enjoy their sort of education a little bit more um but you know part of creating that culture of brotherhood amongst working class men in general, but also white working class men is about changing that approach to schooling. And it's about not being just taught about Jack the Ripper and people like that. When we're taught about working class history in Britain, history is a one-sided thing and it's told by the elite. And so we'll study King Henry VIII and we'll study this, that and the third. Uh, we'll never study normal people or working class movements, even though there are instances in which we could do so. And I think that's where the drop-off point is, is that mixture between white working class boys thinking still that they've got to go out and work and the fact that there is nothing to appeal to them in education at all. Tom, I think you stopped recording. Can you press the record button again? It still is. All oh, right. It said it stopped recording, and then it's yeah, it still says recording. All right. Okay. Uh, Jason, um, education. Uh, 
what was your experience of education and how has it fed into what you do? Because, you know, you're making these little, you're, you're a storyteller, right? And you, you make music and there's a groove and you can dance to it, but it's also telling a story. Was your education in this country uh, encouraging of that kind of creativity? Um, no, not really. Uh, a comprehensive school. I went to a state school, um, secondary school, uh, really very poor uh, in the sense of what you learned. As Tommy said, you know, it was, it was just stuff that you couldn't relate to, you know. Uh, I think that's why everybody took to films like Quadrophenia and Eye for England and, and things like that, because it reminded them of their immediate environment. You know what I mean? Especially with, uh, with my mates anyway. And so, so no, it was crap. I got kicked out uh, about six months before I was meant to leave anyway, told that I could sit an exam if I wanted, but probably wouldn't pass it. You know, this, this is a type of, you know, you, you know, it didn't take a genius to, 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 to realise what kind of environment it was, you know. Uh, I wasn't very academic at the time anyway. I had trouble learning. Uh, in primary school, I'd be kept back for lessons uh, and was told not to even bother applying to the grammar school. Uh, to do the 11 plus uh, and so it wasn't until um, sort of I left school went to work in a factory for a year and a half and thought this is not fucking happening uh, and uh, asked my mum if I could move back in with her uh, and uh, they allowed, she allowed me to go to college my stepfather was a successful builder so you know we lived quite uh, a sort of I don't know, middle class life do you know what I mean it was, you know, financially it was anyway. But uh, I think that was the reason why I was allowed to go back, really. You know, there was that freedom there because uh, my old man, my stepdad, earned uh, more money. And that's when I started to educate myself, uh, when I started to learn about stuff that, again, didn't was, I felt a bit alienated from. You know, playwrights like Bertolt Brecht, Artaud, you know, very political people, uh, but, you know, still quite I felt quite alienated Shakespeare as Tommy mentions in the book completely went over my head any Jacobean playwrights you know what I mean forget it you know what I mean um but it's only as I've got older that I've learned to appreciate stuff like that a bit more I guess you know mm. uh but, but by by training myself but yeah I was allowed to go back and do my GCSEs and A levels from 17 onwards uh and I think that gave me a little bit of a step up if, if you know what I mean, intellectually speaking. Yeah, so I just want to rewind a little bit. I always do think, ask the front. Um, a, a lot of the context, the opening chapters of your book, Tom, mm. uh, set a bit of context. And is that real fulcrum moment in the history of this country, well, in a lot of different countries, but and particularly in this country, and particularly for the working class in this country, was the 80s. And that's something that... So that I think me and Jason had the, the uh, I wouldn't call it a pleasure, but <laughs> the experience of, of being front and centre of. And, um, you know, I, I, I can remember that sense of uh, divisiveness. I don't know about you, Jason, that, that really came about. I mean, I left school in, in 1984, right in the middle of the miners' strike. Um, went straight onto a building site. Um, and it was one of the few remaining unionised building sites in London, actually. It was a huge building site. And then, you know, we, so we had NUM, NUM miners come down collecting money. And I can remember the sense of loathing there was. It's shameful when you think about it now. We were not 
consciously on the minor side. I actually was, but the people around me, but I was that weird kid that, you know, reading Dostoevsky on the fucking scaffold, getting fr- getting bricks thrown at me. <laughs> For some reason, yeah. that was me. And, you know, I'd read The Guardian and get equally pilloried for reading the guardian on the scaffold you know mm-hmm. um do you remember that jason what was your memory of that that kind of that period that 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 early to mid 80s period um well as regards to minor strike it didn't really touch grantham because it wasn't a pit town uh and i really didn't see any solidarity either in people's conversations it could have been. I mean, I, I just—it was so long ago. But the my parents divorced in 1980, and my old man was a paramedic, trainee paramedic. My mum just part-time jobs. So we went from that to an environment, say, switch, sort of 1982 onwards. Uh, where my stepdad, he was starting to become quite a successful builder. So you had this idea of individual gain, of being your own lord, so to speak. That hung over the house uh, quite, well, it, it, was, it was massively apparent, you know, um, this personal success of my stepdad. Um, and, you know, the luxuries that it bought a bigger house. He was able to build his own house. Uh, and uh, he did that in the middle of the estate. <laughs> so all you saw really was just the estate houses anyway. And he had this house in the middle of it. Uh, and we'd get taunted at school for being posh, you know what I mean? And so you, you definitely had this Thatcher influence weaving through. I mean, that was great. You know, that was the, the actual belly of the beast. Completely, yeah. And but you know, the ironic thing was that she was hated. You know, my stepdad especially remembers the hatred for a dad in the town was beyond because he would say yes or no to people's livelihoods, basically. And what I mean by that is when he would he would control people's accounts at the fruit and veg shop, you know. If you weren't very good at paying it back, he'd strike you off the list, you know. Uh, and so you can see where she got it from. Do you know what I mean? Um, so, uh, so yeah, that was funny because he didn't see it. He didn't see it himself. But I don't want to demean my stepfather uh, because he's, he's a lovely man, you know what I mean? And he looked after us and he didn't change. You know, he, he, he is by all purposes, personality-wise, very much a working-class man and will always be, you know. It just so happened that, the system Thatcher created just worked out for him. Yeah. And different working class people. Well, it did. Um, I mean, like East London, when I, in that period, you know, it, it was booming. You know, my old man was a builder as well. And, you know, we benefited. There was, there was wall-to-wall work to be had. You could, yeah. The first phase of Canary Wharf was basically built by my old man and his mates. You know, the, you know so there was so much work. I mean, I'm so, you could walk off, you'd be on a building site and you'd hear that, here that down the road was paying £10 more a day and everyone would just fuck off and go and get a job there. And so this created this, this divisiveness about, well, we're doing all right. I mean, we've got loads of money. Literally, that cliche of loads of money you want to cash, that was yeah. my contemporary. So we didn't have a lens that was natural on what was going on in those, those other parts of England, Tom. And, and I feel like 
and also I feel like there's a there is a danger and I feel like that there is this culture of entrepreneurialism in some of the working class and that actually does get them out of a lot of shit situations what do you think of that danger for holding that mass culture of the working class in nostalgia Tom um well the working class have always been what's the word I'm looking for uh, they've been separated in their ambitions and in political opinion as well of course uh, like you say there's always or well there has been an entrepreneurial spirit um, amongst some people since the industrial revolution when you were told that you could work your way up and get yourself out of being working class and particularly since the 80s when you can buy your own council house and essentially become middle class through that or you become a landlord uh, you suddenly change your opinion on how on what money is and how to get money because you no longer have to work for money you can make somebody else work for money um, it's the same as rising up through a business and this is why it's so hard to pin down what working class means nowadays because there's a million and one people that are working class that hate the idea of being it and say no no I'm not working class now I've got a, I've got this nice bloody car sometimes I have like a, a fancy dinner so I'm not working class and then you've got plenty of people that are middle class that still say they're working class like I remember in my book I think it was on question time there was a fella that said uh, he was on about a hundred grand a year um, but he still thought that he was working class and he refused to acknowledge the fact that he was in the top 10% of earners I think it is um, and he didn't work for that money so it's it's such a weird mishmash of trying to figure out what class means nowadays uh, and looking back in time, as you say, Mike, there is definitely a nostalgia for a collectivism of working class people because not many people escaped or not many people could become middle class. Nowadays, still not many people do, but you're told to believe that you can become middle class and therefore it's all, uh, it's all messed up. So. I think we can look back in, not nostalgia, but we can look back and recognise collectivism um, and think how we can bring that up to the, to the modern day without thinking, okay, everything was better back then because in some ways it's always been the same. I think the thing that really strikes me about working class culture and the thing that actually I miss, I mean, I live a middle class life now. I'm one of those people, you know, I earn all right money. Um, I live in the country. I've got, you know, my wife's a social worker, I'm a journalist. My kids essentially are middle class now, right? They are, I mean, but um, the thing that I miss about, about working class culture is the humour and the fun. Uh, <laughs> it strikes me now that, you know, and, and particularly because, you know, like we're not able to access like the pub and the football and the, particularly now this last year, obviously it's a different case. But I feel there's this sliding away and, the, the middle class sort of uh, this kind of big mush middle class in the middle has lost the kind of irreverence and the creativity actually the punk attitude the creativity the do it the do it yourself thing obviously like the punk movement itself was quite art school actually I've always thought it wasn't necessarily a working class culture you know in its rank and file but I miss that 
I miss the good laugh that you had by by identifying around an area, a football team, a pub, a place to go, a musical kind of musical interest. I do miss that, and I feel like the devaluing of that, that, that as you correctly identified, started in the eighties, has really reached fruition now. So even to talk about being working class is somehow seen as distasteful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, but it's as Tommy says, there's so many shades of it, so many, and it's kind of genius, really, isn't it? The way that uh, this, it's kind of got a life of its own now. This divisiveness, it's it's taken on a life of its own almost. Uh, quite fucking genius, really. I mean, it's the thing with the cunts, they're always two steps ahead of us, aren't they? You know, <laughs> yes. we've got to learn how to be two steps ahead with them. We've got to learn to be neck and neck, and we're not. But yes, you're right. Um, yeah, I miss, I miss the humour. Uh, just the brashness and not, not caring for saying the right words. And I'm not talking about calling whatever, somebody by the colour of the skin or calling a woman a slag or whatever, but, you know, it just, just, just that inventiveness, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think actually sometimes in, 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 my, in my nostalgia for football, I miss that within football as well, you know. I miss it in all these different areas where, you know, like when, when, when I was front and centre when that first wave of rave culture happened. And that, that was a working class movement. That was led by the kids from the peripheries of all our cities, realising that, fucking hell, you could, you could do this. And it was something new that wasn't constrained by all those old certainties that you actually were constrained by. You were able, at the same time, you were able to earn a living by putting on raves and selling drugs, let's face it. You're able to um, travel around the country having a laugh and it didn't fit into any of those categories that you'd managed to get out of by, which are really constricting characters saying, oh, you, like, you're going you're gonna to grow up, you're going to go down the pit. And I know that from my northern friends. No one really aspired to going down the pit any more than I aspired to being an odd carrier. But it was a, a, a means to an end, right? Um, and this is a perfect breeding ground for division, isn't it? And blame because nobody wants it you know i don't want to be i didn't want to stay where i was fuck all that no way i want to know i want nice things you know what i mean mm. it's fucking really hard so tom um the book's out now right right now it is yeah it is now how is it um what's the process been like for you to be I mean, have you suffered slings and arrows yet? The the only thing um, that I've had, and I suppose I should touch, fingers crossed, touch wood when I say this, the only thing that I've had as so far is uh, somebody on Twitter saying, don't you mean a small man's Britain instead of a small man's England? Um, so bearing that in mind, there's, there's now that I've really had to defend myself from as of yet. It may well still come. Um, but it was a great process and I mean it started off as a book about working class youth culture largely but it was far too broad um, and I wasn't really going in depth for saying anything new um, so Peter picked out uh, or said you should pick out um, one specific thing and hammer in on that so I came back and proposed it uh, being about white working class men um, 
And yeah, no, it's, it's been a really good process ever since. There's been a lot of amazing people over at Repeater that have read it through and uh, made their suggestions and added things on that I haven't thought about. It's been a, a learning process as well. And it's been fantastic. And, and tough and tough right now not to be able to do and do what you do and, and, and to read in public and to actually have a public forum. Jason, that mm. must be something that obviously there's been a lot said about that. How are you finding this uh, not being mm. able to to tour your because you had an album out a couple of months ago, right? Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, album of our career by 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 all accounts. People it's been really received well. Um everyone thinks it's brilliant, you know, which is brilliant, obviously, but um yeah, you want that lift, you want that live experience, don't you, to push it. To, because to me, it's like it captures a time and place. All albums do, regardless of what the content is. And so, therefore, you need to, you need to grab that time and place and, and run with it, you know. And because we can't gig, uh, we're not doing anything, you know what I mean? So it's almost like you're having to put that time and place on hold, as most bands are, you know, all bands, actually. So be interesting to see how that that one folds out. But, you know, the stuff on Spare Ribs, the content, you could apply it to any fucking time, really, apart from, obviously, the pandemic. You know, it just talks about various levels of oppression all of the time, you know. I find that really intriguing, interesting, not just from a working-class perspective, or but from a middle-class perspective now, from, from just being a person, you know what I mean? Uh, so, yeah, that'll carry on, you know what I mean? Just a, a kind of an aside, really. I'm interested in your obviously that, as I say, I've, I've referred to your 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 songs as little stories, and it strikes me they are storytellers. Sto they are stories that you tell, um, uh, and, and there's a groove as well. What's your process? Do you do you sit and do you come up with a, a, a catchy line or a verse or a, or, a, or a melody or what? Is that how it goes? How does it work? Either one of those, really. A melody sometimes, a catchy line. Uh, a verse, two verses, a chorus, you know, any of that can kickstart a song really. And most of the songs, uh, they talk about various things, you know, but they're just one liners in them that tell the story, the complete story, you know. Uh, that's how I kind of, most of my stories exist in one line, so to speak. That's what I wanted to say, I think, you know, as opposed to the whole song being dedicated to one subject. They're a mismatch of, lots of subjects because I think that's how my perception certainly felt over the last 20 years. You know, I don't, I really can't pinpoint just one thing all of the time. It's just so many things coming in and out. Uh, and whether you believe them or not, whether you like them or not, they're just in and out all the time. You know, life moves fast, doesn't it? Late capitalism moves fast, so to speak. So I wanted to try and bring that over. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. And, um, Tom, uh, Small Man's England, a polemic. You're a, you're a performance poet. You like getting out there um, and performing yourself. What's the difference in the writing process for you for writing something that's going to be read out in front of a crowd? Hello. Um, mm. uh, um, and, yeah. and what's the difference between that process and writing prose and writing polemics? Is it, is it much different for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, I started off doing purely spoken words um, and that's what I sort of cut my teeth on in my late teens and so on and so forth. Um, and that's all about sort of getting your message across 
in language that can be understood by anyone and it focuses like lyrics on rhythm and melody, uh, melody and cadence and all that um, and it took me well it didn't take me that long but it took me a while to think okay now I want to hone in on writing for publication and that's a whole different thing you have to be a bit more subtle in terms of creative writing you have to present your ideas in ways that will not necessarily hit home immediately but may um, come back to sort of haunt the reader if you like just <laughs> after they finish the chapter um, it's a whole different thing you have to be a bit more surgical with it I suppose but I, I suppose, enjoyed it. Yeah, it occurs to me actually if you're used to standing up in front of a stage spitting out your bars as it were then uh, the Twitter mob holds no fear for you Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I only became really active on Twitter probably since doing this book. But um, I mean, the, the spoken word community where I am in London is absolutely fantastic. And um, I think that's one of the places in the arts where you can really find a sense of community and solidarity as well. I think we should recognise where, uh, where these communities do still exist and uh, a lot of it can be in the arts particularly if you can't make much money from it which is what a lot of spoken word people are like um it's hard to make money so, um, final question really because we've we've got so much good stuff there and we've only got a sort of half hour edit so I'm, I'm 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 wary to keep on blathering on too long but it strikes mm. me that we're both all of us sitting here interested in working class culture we've all produced work that, that comments on that what for you, if I was an alien coming from outer space and I wanted to look at one film or one book that summed up that I could learn about the English working class, it could, what would it be? You're not allowed to say your own work, obviously. Um, I mean, I'll always, I'll always turn to This Is England, I think. I think that sums it up nicely um, and sets us off for what has become of a country since I think that's perfectly presents the turning point in the country from uh, this nostalgic or uh, regressive vision of the old country to what we are in now, the late capitalism, as Jason was talking about. So, yeah, this God, is England. God bless Shane Meadows, eh? It's a, a, oh, massive, definitely. a massive influence. How about you, Jason? What, what would you point to? I don't know, really. Probably a collection of films. Uh, again, going back to Shane Meadows, Dead Man's Shoes, uh, just in the sense of aspects of working class culture. Um, fucking hell. I'm not great at being put on the spot, do you know what I mean? <laughs> Sorry. Well, you know what? what one, of, one of the things that I always loved, uh, do you remember a thing called Mean Time? Um, no. It was What's a thing. I, I can never, I should be Googling the shit out of it, but I'm not that sort of journalist. Um, but meantime was a thing with um, it was with Gary, a young, very young Gary Oldman. Um, I think it was Gary Oldman, a very young um, uh, Phil Daniels, yeah. and a very young who's it? Uh, Tim Roth. Oh, okay. Uh, and they were in it. It was it was it was one of those plays for today. It was a very uh, l l late play for today in the early eighties. Um, oh, have to have a look at that. It was. It's really worth looking at, but it really captured that 
And the, basically the narrative was that inner city kids go and have to stay with their posher aunt out in Essex. Um, and it's just that little tower. It's really worth looking at. Uh, but again, you know, I think, you know, people like Shane Meadows and I don't know who directed Meantime, but there's not that many people doing that work, is there? These things aren't getting commissioned. Even in the flood, even in the absolute flood of content that things like Netflix and Amazon are going are hoovering up, you still don't get these working class stories, right? No, you're tending now to get more kind of um, stylized versions, aren't you, to a certain degree? Or you're getting lots of stuff that's centre on members of the elite, you know what I mean? Uh, there's lots of, you know, sort of series, episodes, your dramas that are based around wealthy families, around aristocracy. And, you know, don't get me wrong, some of these, uh, some of these things I've watched and enjoyed, but, you know, you don't, you're not getting any nil by mouth anymore, are you? Or anything like that. Oh, nil by mouth. Fuck yeah, of course. Fantastic. And, oh, that's and, unbelievable. It's kind of riddled in cliche. Yeah. Uh, nil by mouth, I'd forgotten totally about that. Directed by Gary Oldman, right? Funny enough. Yes, it was. Yeah, well, it's based on his childhood, wasn't it? But, yeah, um, and with Ray Winston, of course. Yes. Uh, in fact, I met, I met Ray Winston. I interviewed him around the time that that came out. And uh, he was saying to me that today that was his proudest bit piece of work. Because oh, you, know what I, you know what I loved about it? It actually, I mean, I grew up on a, on a, on a housing, you know, a, a sort of semi-detached housing estate, you know, not a high rise, not a low rise, but our houses. And the, the estate that Neil by Mouth set in was a bit like the estate that I grew up in. It had flats and it had houses and there was a certain beauty to it that Gary Oldman in that film or the art director managed to get across. And that kind of actually, you know, you, that, that, this is one of what a big hobby also mine is that council houses are something used to be something to aspire to, right? They're, they're something that, that can be these little utopias and something in nil by mouth, even though the story behind it was a terrible story of abuse and violence and male on male horribleness and neglects and, and misogyny. There was this element in it that was beautiful, and I think that's very hard to pull off. And they did that then. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I just remember the opening scene where he's ordering a drink, and that just said it all. It's just, it's just yeah. brilliant. I nailed it. You know. What you I mean? Remember the joke? Remember the Jamie Foreman's joke about going to a swingers party and like? No, I can't remember. He, he tells this joke. He's at a swingers party. He goes back there and everyone's like, you know, Daisy chained it up and he gets out halfway through and so it starts rolling a joint. He goes, oh, hold on a minute, it's not one of those sort of parties. 